Well, good morning, everybody. Very good to see you. If this is uh, your first time here at New Life, Happy New Year to you and welcome. We're so glad that you're here. Uh, we hope that uh, you'll take time to stop by the hub at the back and introduce yourself to one of our team members. Uh, we'd love to get to know you and help you in any way that we can. And as uh, Trevor mentioned, my name is Paul. I'm one of the elders here at the church. And this morning we are resuming our series in the book of Ephesians. And I, for one, am extremely excited uh, about that. Um, if you are just joining us or just by way of recap, uh, those of you that were here when we started the series last year uh, realize that uh, most scholars believed that the letter to the Ephesians was actually a circulating letter uh, that was designed to go to uh, numerous churches in Asia Minor. And so as they received the letter, uh, it might have had the actual locale blank to the church in blank. And then if, when it was in Ephesus, it would be to the church in Ephesus or the church uh, wherever it may be in Laodicea, etc., etc. And uh, that's in, important to understand because it then becomes a letter that's really designed not just for one particular group of people, but for Christians everywhere, including us and Paul wrote this letter specifically so that his readers, and that would include us, would understand our wonderful position in Christ. And, and when you look at this letter, um, things will pop out at you, like the number of times uh, the term in Christ is used. I, I believe it's 13 times you'll read the words in Christ. Um, you'll also read nine times the words in him. And there are a variety of other ways in which Paul talks about us being in Christ. Ephesians deepens our understanding of the gospel. In fact, I think next to the, the gospel of John, I think Ephesians is where I would point mo most people if they want to know how does a person become a Christ follower? How does a, a person become a child of God? Ephesians answers that question for us, and, and it glorifies the person of Christ, and it magnifies the importance of the church, something that I think in our day and age, especially here in the United States, um, the church is, 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 is not regarded as very important at all. We have privatized and individualized our Christianity. And Ephesians actually magnifies the importance of the church. And it does so by linking doctrine to everyday life. So it's not just dry teaching and, and doctrine, but Paul takes the, the doctrine or the, or the teaching and he links it to life. And the first three chapters are, for the most part, purely doctrinal. In it, we, we learn what we are to know and what we are to believe. The last three chapters are very practical. It's how do we live in light of what we know? In light of the things that Paul has shared with the Ephesians, how are they supposed to live their lives? And, and I think that as we go through this book, as we continue to go through this book, you're going to find that this little letter just fosters deep humility in us. It has to. And it provokes us to God-honoring worship. Now, with that being said, 
I, I can't help but wonder, because I'm reading through the book of Ephesians repeatedly, and I, and I camp out on certain passages, like the passage we're going to be looking at today. And I, and I have a question that, that, that I have been asking myself all week long, and, and that is, with everything that God has done for us, with everything that he has given to us, with all of his wonderful, marvelous promises, why then do so many Christians seem to live in defeat? Why do so many Christians seem to not be able to live the victorious Christian life, that they struggle in living out the Christian faith? It, it really is perplexing when you think about it because we have, we have more teaching we have more Bibles, more books, more conferences, more concerts, more seminars. We have more resources at our disposal than at any other time in history. But yet the church here, in America anyway, seems to be so weak. Why is that? Especially with the backdrop of the book of Ephesians. Now, please don't misunderstand me because I'm not saying that doctrine's not important. Um, that knowledge isn't important. We need to know if we are going to be able to do. There, there's, I mean, obviously, I'm up here right now preaching, so that tells you I believe that this is important. But merely knowing and believing what God has said and done is not enough. It's not enough. We need more than knowledge. So, so what is the missing ingredient between knowing and doing? If, if, if we have all this at our disposal, if we hear all these sermons, read these books and study, I mean, we have the Bible on our, our phones, our, our laptops, our TVs, we, it's everywhere. But yet we struggle with the doing. It seems like there's something missing. What is it? Well, when I look at, at, at the next three chapters, it becomes imperative to me that we discover what that something is. Because the next three chapters, Paul's going to talk about how we live out what we know. But we've already discovered that we have a hard time doing this. So, this morning we're going to see the answer to that question in verses 14 through 21 in chapter 3. Now, at the beginning of chapter 3, which we covered uh, last month, um, the Apostle Paul begins to pray. But then he goes on an excursus, or he digresses, and he talks about his stewardship um, of God's grace. And he talks about the mystery that had been hidden for centuries, but then was revealed to him. Namely, that both Jews and Gentiles have been brought together into one glorious body called the church. And this was a group of people that had never been seen before on the face of the earth. But, but now we come to verse 14, and Paul gets back to his prayer. He gets back to his prayer, he resumes it, and what a glorious prayer it is. And evidently, Paul felt that the Ephesians believers needed this type of prayer, this type of intercession. And I think it's something that we need too. 
Paul knew that to live the Christian life, mere knowledge is not enough. Believing the right things is not enough. We need God's power to live the life He calls us to live. Let's pray together. Father, we come before You this morning, and we come as a needy people. And Lord God, we, we know we can't live the Christian life in our own strength. We need your power. It's not just in believing the right things, knowing the right things. Lord, if, if it was that simple, we'd all be super saints. But Lord, as your servant, uh, the Apostle Paul writes here, um, he prays for power. And Lord, we need that power. We need your power. And Lord, as we open up your word, would you reveal to us not only our need for it, but the why behind it, that we might live lives that are wholly pleasing to you. Holy Spirit, be our teacher here this morning, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. I want you to imagine for a moment that you have been given a new car, okay? I don't care what kind of car, but it's a new one, okay? I also want you to imagine that you have been given a map, a map to some really amazing, wonderful destinations that you can get in your new car and take off and go to, okay? So I want you to imagine that. You, you pack your bags, you load up the car, you get in it, you turn the key, only to discover that the car does not start. So you wonder why? Um, you, you get out of the car, you open up the hood, and you discover that you have no engine. That's a problem, okay? I mean, what good is a new car in, in, a, in a map if you can't get the car on the road rolling uh, down the highway? It's no good whatsoever. Now, the car may look beautiful. And then think about it. Think about whatever car it is that you're thinking about. I mean, I bet you it looks pretty good. Mine looks pretty good. Nice and shiny. Um, I, for me, this is a throwback. I like T-tops, okay? Anybody ever have T-tops? A car with, I, had a, I had a Mustang with T-tops. Loved it. And, um, and, and super great stereo. Collins tubes in the back and everything. Rocking out. Um, you know, mag wheels, everything. Beautiful plush interior. Looks great. But without an engine, it's not going anywhere. And you can have a map to tell you where all the wonderful places are, but if you don't have a way to get there, you're, you're out of luck. I want you to think about the book of Ephesians like that. The first three chapters is the car. I mean, it's decked out. You've got a lot of accessories. You've got a lot of wonderful things, the shiny bells and whistles, luxury. The last half of the book is the map. It tells you where you can take your car, where you ought to take your car. But again, um, we find ourselves in the predicament that we have no engine. So this morning, we're going to find out what it is that it's going to take for us to be able to get that car moving. What is the engine? If you have your Bibles, open up to chapter 3, verse 14. We're going to start reading through verse 19. For this reason... I bow my knees before the Father, 
from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height in depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, the last half of chapter 3 contains both a prayer and doxology. We're going to look at the prayer first. We're going to look at Paul's prayer we're going to focus on that because we can learn a lot about the Christian life and uh, about prayer just from these verses. So look at verse 14. For this reason. What reason? Well, Paul's using the same words that he used in verse 1. He started out for this reason, and then he digressed, and now he's coming back to it. So, so really, it goes back to chapters 1 and 2. What Paul is saying, on the basis of what God has done for me, for us, for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, for these reasons, he begins to pray. And it's really neat because when you look at chapter 1 and chapter 2 and you see all that God has done for you, it gives us reason to pray. If God has gone to such great lengths to do for us the things that he has done for us, then we would be foolish not to come to him in prayer. So it's because of all that God has done that he can pray. And if you notice, Paul is filled with humble gratitude as he prays. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Now, in our culture, we, we talk about prayer in those terms, about bowing our knees and stuff. But you have to understand that in, in Paul's day, and even today, in the Jewish culture, kneeling is not a typical posture of prayer. Standing is. If you went to Jerusalem today and you went to the Wailing Wall, you would see the, the Jewish people standing at the wall praying in the prone position. That's typically how people prayed. Now, in the Bible, you'll notice that there are occasions where people get on their knees and they pray. But when they do so, they do so with deep humility. Um, they, they, they're, they're desperate for something. And they are in full submission to God. And so when we look at this, we, we, we see that Paul is overwhelmed with all that God has done for him. And to him, he is so desperate to have his prayer answered that he bows before the Father. And, and just think about, here's, here's just a few things that God has done for us in the first couple of chapters. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. We have been chosen by God before the foundation of the world. We have been predestined to adoptions as sons. We have been redeemed, forgiven, and made alive in Christ. 
We have been lavished with grace. We've been seated with Christ and sealed with the Holy Spirit. We have obtained an inheritance and are in fact an inheritance. And we have been grafted into a new society known as the church. When you stop and think about all of that and now you see Paul coming and kneeling before the Father. With all of that in mind, what you're really seeing is that Paul's prayer is an explosion of worship. It's an explosion of praise. And it made me wonder, does that characterize the way that I pray? Is my prayer life an explosion of praise and worship? And all too often the answer is no. That is something I I believe in 2020 God wants to change in me. I I think for most of us probably, if you were honest, would probably agree that we spend far too much time asking God for stuff to do things on our behalf, even for others, rather than thanking Him and praising Him for all the things that He's already done for us. I love Psalm 95, verses 6 and 7. It says, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. You see that? Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us humbly demonstrate our desperation for him, our love for him. Let us kneel before the Lord, our God, our maker. The the way Paul expressed these words is, he says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Now in verse 16 we start to see Paul's petition unfold. And and in verse 16, we see the first of four glorious requests, the last of which is the culmination of the previous three. And, And Paul's prayer is kind of like a staircase that just rises and rises until it it comes to a climax in verse 19. Each purpose clause or each request is preceded by the word that or so that. So look at verse 16. It says, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Again, simply knowing the truths of Scripture that Paul spoke of in the first three chapters is not enough for, be, for us to be able to live them out. We need God's power to accomplish this. And, and Paul is asking the Father to grant them strength and power to live for him. And you say, well, what, what do we need power for? Well, we need power to overcome sin in our life. We need power to stand up to the forces of darkness that are arrayed against us, the world system. We need power to obey his commands. We need power to pray, 
power to love, power to share the gospel with other people. We need power to be like Jesus. And notice, Paul doesn't ask God to do this out of his riches and glory, but according to the riches of his glory. Now, it's a, it's a fine distinction, but it's one that Scripture makes. And, and we see it occur right here in the book of Ephesians in chapter 1. Look at uh, Ephesians 1, verse 7. It says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his glory. Not out of, but according to. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 19 and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. So it's according to. Any of you girls need any money? Well, you, you're, you're smiling like, yeah, I, you need some money? You need some money? I can give you some money, right? Uh, I think I've got some money somewhere in my pocket. Oh, that's a lens cleaner. Um, don't think you want that. Another lens cleaner. Hey, I got some money here for you, okay? Let's see. I got a 10, a 5, a couple of 1s. You need some money. Here, I'll give you a couple of 1s. What's the There's no catch. There's no catch. I'm just giving you a couple bucks there. You see what I did there? I gave out of what I had. Trust me, there's no more, okay? There's, there's a couple of You can actually keep those, that 2 bucks. Go. You can buy lunch later. Um, um, but 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 this is this is what I ha I gave out of. That that indicates that there's a limit to what I have. That's not how God gives. God gives according to. He has no shortage. There is no limit to what God has. God has everything. So when he gives according to, he's really giving in harmony with who he is and what he has. It literally means that God gives in agreement or harmony with his will and character. And God is a good God, a gracious God, a loving God. He gives graciously and abundantly. He's not stingy and he doesn't give begrudgingly. See, we, we need to understand that. God doesn't, you know, I, I got this, but I, I can only give you a little bit here because, you know, I don't have everything. God gives graciously. We need God's power to live the life he calls us to live. And he gives according to his riches in glory, his riches in grace. So the question then becomes, how does God give? Well, he, it says here he grants power through his Holy Spirit. Well, why does he do this? Well, this brings us to the second request. The first request is for power, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power. The second request follows, and it's so that, verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So that, grant you power, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, 
Some of you may be thinking, but wait a minute. Christ is already living in me. I mean, I've been a Christian for 30 years, 40 years or whatever. And when I became a Christian, Christ came to live in me. What do you mean that Christ may dwell in my heart? Well, let me see if I can unpack that. First of all, I think we need to be clear that when we speak of the indwelling Christ and the indwelling Spirit, we're talking about the same person. Because the Spirit of God is the Spirit of Christ. Now, the word that Paul uses for dwell here is a Greek word that is unique. He could have used a word that simply meant inhabited, but he doesn't. He uses a word that means to settle down in. To settle down in. You see, Jesus doesn't want to be a guest in our home. He wants to take up ownership. He wants to be the owner. Jesus wants ownership. Unfortunately, many of us treat him like a guest. And even in a heart that welcomes him, as the owner, as the rightful owner, even, even there, he may not necessarily feel at home. Again, let me see if I can maybe uh, unpack this a little bit. Um, my wife and I, we love hosting a life group on Wednesday nights in our home. Um, we love having people over, but anybody who regularly, you know, hosts, um, realizes that it's it's a lot of work getting ready to have a bunch of people over to your house. I mean, there's vacuuming the floor, getting all the dog hair off of the couch, and, you know, getting the coffee ready, and just, you know, just generally, you know, making the place look livable um, so that people, they don't walk in and go, ooh, you know? Um, and so there's a little bit of work that goes on. Now, the guests come, we want them to feel at home, that's why we do the work, but it's not their home, okay? We don't, we don't have people that raid our pantry or our refrigerator when they feel like it. At least I don't think they are. Paul, you're not raiding my refrigerator, are you? Okay. Um, no, we put out snacks and things for, for people, but, but they don't have the run of the house. Uh, why? Because they're guests. They're not owners. Now, um, since I'm picking on Paul here a little bit, um, imagine Paul Johnson came over to my house, and he comes over to my house, and he starts to do my laundry. Um, he, he then scrubs the floors, cleans my toilets, okay? And then, and then he does the dishes, takes out the trash, mows the lawn, sees the pile of bills on the table, pays the bills. Is he acting like a guest or an owner? Clearly, an owner. That's what an owner does, right? Um, what if I said, whoa, this is my house. I like smelly clothes, dirty floors, stained toilets. Uh, I, I, I like, you know, uh, the dishes piled up in the sink, garbage overflowing, piles of bills, tall grass, and TV dinners. You know? You guys say, well, we're not having life group there this week. <laughs> Uh, you, you wouldn't want to come to a house like that. But listen, that is exactly the kind of home Christ enters when he enters our hearts. We may not like to admit it, but it's true. 
He is not yet at home in our hearts. He hasn't yet settled down in our hearts. He may be living there, but there's a lot of cleaning that needs to be done. There's a lot of work, and it takes a lot of power and a lot of patience. And first, he, he gives us a bath. He washes us clean with his blood. He begins taking out the trash that has accumulated over the years. He changes our diet. He teaches us not to let sin pile up, but to deal with it right away. And eventually, we learn how to keep the house clean and mow the lawn, so to speak. He is making our heart his home. But even after Christ does that work, by the power of the Holy Spirit in our life, we must be on guard that we do not take the reins of ownership back. And even if we don't do that, we still have to be careful that we don't create additional messes for Him to clean up. I mean, that's one of the things we struggle with with our kids all the time, you know, is just, you know, you, you make a mess, you, you clean it up, because otherwise I end up having to clean it up, or my wife ends up having to clean it up. More often than not, she has to end up cleaning it up. But you get the point. Just keep it clean. Now, Paul, by the way, let me give you a side note here. If you look at the passage on the screen, you'll notice I highlighted three words. Father, Spirit, and Christ. I think this is the fourth time in the book of Ephesians where Paul references the Trinity. Where he deliberately shows how the Trinity works together in our redemption, in our salvation, and in our growth in Christ. Paul now moves on from talking about God's strength to God's love. But keep in mind, power is still in view. Because it still takes power for us to fully comprehend his love. So let's look at the third request. Verse 17. Again, it begins with that. That you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Paul is praying that God would grant them power and strength so that they might fully grasp the enormity of God's love for them. Something we struggle with. I struggle with. I, I can't cognitively comprehend that. I can't. It's, it's beyond me. Paul says it surpasses knowledge. It's understandable to a degree, but it surpasses knowledge. The only way to truly comprehend and appreciate his love is to experience it. That's why I think so many times people have such a hard time defining love, especially in relationships, you know. It's, it's just, it's, it is, it's, it's hard. You have to experience it. I like what D.A. Carson, um, the theologian professor at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School said. He said this, Paul is not asking that his readers might become more able to articulate the greatness of God's love in Christ Jesus or to grasp with the intellect alone how significant God's love is in the plan of redemption. 
He is asking God that they might have the power to grasp the dimensions of that love in their experience. I think far too many Christians know of God's love and maybe have experienced it to a certain level, but not to the level that Paul's talking about. Because that changes everything. Paul uses two metaphors here to describe the life of someone who's infused with God's power and the presence of the indwelling Christ. One is botanical and one is architectural. Do you see it? It says that, that they are rooted and grounded in love. Rooted is the botanical, the idea of roots going down deep into the soil and pulling up the nutrients from the soil. Grounded is, is an architectural term. It's like building a house on a proper foundation. John Stott said this about this passage. He said, love is to be the soil in which our lives are to be rooted. Love is to be the foundation on which our life is built. And, and I want you to notice something else too. He prays that we might comprehend with all the saints. That, that we are to comprehend, again, that we may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, the depth, and to know the love of Christ and and, and, and as I was looking at that, I'm, I'm thinking, wow, again, Paul is showing us the importance of the church. It, it tells us again how important the church is for our spiritual growth. We will never experience the boundless love of Christ when we're distant from family, from God's family, from God's children. We are transformed in community as we grow together. Again, I, I like what John Stott said. He said this, listen, we need the whole people of God to understand the whole love of God. That makes perfect sense. We need each other to understand the whole love of God. I mean, when I look at Paul Johnson, I think about how much God loves him. I go, wow, that's a lot of love. <laughs> and he does the same when he says, man, look how much God loves you, Paul. Yeah, that's a lot of love. When we see the body of Christ loving one another and thinking about Jesus' words that he prays that, that we might love one another, that this new command, and the Bible says God is love. We love because he first loved us. So in our loving of one another, in our serving of one another, we are giving one another an opportunity to see one of the attributes of God fleshed out in us. I could say so much more about that, but I've got to move on. The fourth request is the culmination of the previous three, and it cannot be answered apart from God answering the first three. So what is it? It's verse 19. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Wow. 
think about that. Paul is praying in this stair-step prayer that culminates, this climax here, what he's getting at. Here's the bottom, the end of the line. He says that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, fullness is a theme that is seen repeatedly in the book of Ephesians and also in the book of Colossians. Um, but I, I want to make it clear as to what Paul is, is talking about. Imagine you go to Lake Erie and uh, you take a cup like this with you. And you walk out into the water and you put your cup down and you scoop up some of the water in Lake Erie. Is all of Lake Erie in your cup? No. But your cup is full of Lake Erie. Right? Paul is saying something similar. He's not saying that we become God. That everything that makes God God, as vast as it is, as enormous and just mind-boggling, that, that all of a sudden, boom, all of a sudden we're God. There are some people who believe this. That's not what, what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying, though, is, is, is that that which is the essence of God. God fills us. We are the cup that God fills. We are filled with and out of the fullness of God. He desires to fill us with His Holy Spirit to overflowing. The fact that it's overflowing tells you we don't have the entirety of the Holy Spirit in the sense that we can kind of keep Him encapsulated and, and contained within our bodies. It, that's why it overflows. We can't, but we can be filled. He wants to impart His communicable attributes he wants them to be, and by that, we're talking about love and faithfulness and goodness and mercy. All the things that God possesses that he has desired from the very beginning to share with us, he imparts to us, and he wants to fill us with that. And when Paul prays that we be filled with all the fullness of God, what he is simply saying is that I pray that they may be complete, that they might be made mature in Christ. So Paul ends his petition in verse 19 and then gives us a fitting doxology. Now this past week, my life group, we, we studied this passage of Scripture, and, and the word doxology comes from two Greek words, doxa and lagas. Doxa meaning praise, lagas meaning word, speech, or utterance. So a doxology is simply any type of speech that is full of praise. Praise to God. It could be a short statement. It could be a paragraph. It could be a whole prayer. But here he gives us a doxology. Look at verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now that's wonderful. You read that and you just go, man, that is so good, so cool. But man, you have got to take it apart. You've got to look at it piece by piece to fully grasp what Paul is saying. Paul says that God is able. Well, that's good. Good news. What does that mean? 
God is able. It, it means God has the ability. He has the will. He has the power. God is able. For what? To do. God is able to do. God is an active God. He is at work. He, his, he's never hamstrung. Now, this is where Paul begins to heap superlatives on. Notice, he is able to do far more. Far more. Far more than, than what? Well, he says that he is able to do far more abundantly. Okay, far, far more. Again, what? Far more abundantly. Some translations say immeasurably more, much, much more, above and beyond, beyond all measure, infinitely more. It simply means that there are no limits to what God can do. But wait, there's more. He's able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask. Hmm. Truth is, we often lack the faith to ask. But whatever we could possibly ask for, according to the will of God, whatever it is, God is able to do far more abundantly. Abundantly. Beyond that. I mean, so just stop for a moment and think about some of the things that you have prayed for. And if God answered that prayer, or if he were to answer that prayer, you would you know, go, wow, fantastic. God says, I can do far greater than that. Far more. Infinitely more. But guess what? He's not done yet. He says he is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. Sometimes... We can imagine things to pray for, things to ask for, but we don't for one reason or another. Maybe a lack of faith. Um, maybe we just think it's silly to ask God for something. But what this verse tells us is God knows your thoughts. He knows what you're thinking bef before there's a word on your tongue. And and I think, personally, I think God delights in blowing us away by answering our prayers. Even ones we don't even ask. Even the ones we just merely think. I, I remember uh, a number of years ago when I was down in South Carolina, I may have shared this story before, but I, I remember going into the DMV, which is the equivalent of the BMV, um, and I, I just thought, you know, I really would love to get some personalized plates. I think that would be really cool. And uh, so I waited in line. I finally got to the teller. I asked the lady how much it would cost to get personalized plates. And it was too expensive. I couldn't afford it. So I just said, all right, forget it. You know, just give me regular plates. Lady turns around. She goes, pulls out the plates, comes back. She pulls them out. I look at them. And I said, are those my plates? And she said, yeah. I said, those are my initials. All three. All three of my initials in order are there. And I'm thinking... I'm just telling you what I'm thinking. I think, God, you are too much. I just thought this. And I, I just think God was in heaven. Yeah, let's blow him away. <laughs> you know, I just, let's see, let, I want to see the look on his face when I do this. 
Uh, I remember when we were living in Virginia uh, in, in 2006, right before we moved to South Carolina, um, I realized that uh, moving to South Carolina, I was probably not going to see the snow um, that I so love. And, uh, and I was a little sad. And I remember, um, and it was during a, a very warm time. It was April. So it's not typical time for snow. I hadn't seen any weather reports or anything. But I remember just thinking, not, not asking, but just thinking. It was like, gosh, God, it would be so cool if you would give me a little more snow before I go to South Carolina. I know, it sounds silly, stupid, you know, but I, I thought it. The next day, we got a foot of snow. And I, and I thought, again, I think this is God. I, I think there, and I, and I realize, you know, I may be stretching a little bit, but I believe God is good. I believe God answers prayers that we don't even dare to pray just simply because he loves us. I mean, think about how you as parents treat your kids and the things that you do for them when they don't ask. It's because you love them and you care for them. I think God does stuff like that. So sometimes, though, obviously, it is beyond our ability to imagine. And I'm so grateful that God is able to do far more abundantly than all we could ask or think He's not dependent upon my ability to be able to come up with something worthwhile for God to do. So why do many Christians not experience victory? I think the answer is at the end of verse 20. It says, God is able to do far more abundantly than we all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. We need God's power to live the life that he calls us to live. It cannot be mustered by self-effort. Only God can do it. And that's why Paul prays for it. Paul knows that despite his teaching, despite everything he has imparted to them, in order for them to do what's coming in 4 through 6, they need God's power. So he prays to that end. And folks, so should we. We need to pray that God would grant us power to live for him, to love as he has loved us. And Paul is a perfect example. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, this is what he says, We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. There's that fullness. For this purpose I also labor, and listen, striving according to his power which mightily works within me. Paul was able to do what Paul did because of the power of God that worked mightily in him. So why does God do all of this? Why does God why has God taken up residence in my life? Why has God given me power? Why has he given you power? Well, the answer is in verse 21. See it? He wants to be glorified in our lives and through the church. Not just for a moment, not just for a season, but for all of eternity. 
what we do in this life, empowered by the Spirit of God, will echo in eternity. It will bring God glory forever and ever and ever. God blesses and empowers his children to do his will for his glory. So let me ask you as I close, is Christ truly at home in your heart? If not, do you want him to be? Are you willing to give up control and ownership? It may be a little messy. It may be a little painful. But if he takes up ownership, he's going to do some cleaning. He's going to make some changes. He's going to redecorate. And you have to be okay with that. You can't live the Christian life on your, on your own. And some of you are tired of trying. I know I've had conversations with some of you. Some of you are, are finding it difficult. You know, hey, you, you got the car, you got the map, here's the engine. God's power is what you need in order to do what it is that you know. Remember, a car and a map doesn't do you any good without an engine. We need God's power to help us live the life He calls us to live. Let me pray for you. Father God, Dad, I pray that according to the riches of your glory, that you will grant your people to be strengthened with power through your Spirit in their inner being, so that the Lord Jesus will dwell in their hearts through faith, that being rooted and grounded in love, they may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that they may be filled with all of your fullness. And it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.